an American music school can be very different from a European music school because they have a tradition to withhold and they have a tradition to uphold. But the fact is that uh, for us, we can continue on. We can we can expand to other types of music. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the second season of Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. I'm delighted to open this season of Art Restart with composer Sahpa Aminikya. Sakpa is an Iranian-American composer, musician, and educator based in San Francisco, whose own musical training spanned three continents. He first studied composition in the city of his birth, Tehran, and then relocated to Russia to attend the St. Petersburg State Conservatory. After emigrating as a refugee to San Francisco in 2006, Sakhba then earned his bachelor's and master's degrees in music at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. His passion for blending genres and cultural influences in his work quickly garnered attention from musicians and ensembles all over the world. Among the performing groups to have commissioned him are Kronos Quartet, Brooklyn Youth Chorus, and Symphony Parnassus, and his compositions have been performed all over the world. Sahba is also the founder and artistic director of the annual Flying Carpet Children Festival that since 2018 has been bringing music and world-class musicians, as well as circus arts, to the Turkish border city of Mardin to engage and delight refugee children from Iraq and Syria. The music you're currently hearing is titled House of Circus, composed by Sahba. It is performed by Minnesota Philharmonic Orchestra, which also commissioned the piece. Sahba spoke to me from his home in San Francisco, having recently returned from Mardin, where he oversaw and took part in this year's festival, the first in person since the pandemic. I asked him if, as he was studying to be a musician, he had a career goal in mind. Uh, not really. Even now, I don't <laughs> really. <laughs> the reality is that uh, at the time I started learning the piano uh, from a very young age, since I was nine. And uh, I was always this kind of uh, mischief, this kind of character that I was not a good pianist. I, I, I was horrible at my piano classes because I cannot concentrate, I mean, the way pianists do on the Mozart piece, on a Bach piece. And But I could improvise. I still can improvise for hours on piano. So that's how I started. I started improvising on piano and I had a small melodica also as a child. So that's my where my musician, musicianship starts. But uh, I was kind of discovered by this incredible teacher in Iran, Mr. Rehran Rohani, who himself uh, was a Baha'i professor and he was fired from the university and he was teaching from his home in Tehran. And he had a gigantic collection of uh, records in his room. I, I went to him originally as a piano student. But he realized that I'm more talented on the composition side. So he started giving me composition lessons, actually, in that room. 
My next question is, what would you say is your mission today and what happened to change it? But you say you don't have a mission still. Uh, I still look at music as a game and I enjoy playing music and enjoy composing music. The next step I usually don't think about because I think good music is produced that way. Actually, when you when you're still enjoying the joy of music instead of looking at it as a career, as a job. And I've been lucky also throughout the way, I should mention this, that maybe this uh, joy comes from privilege as well, because I've been lucky uh, that since I've arrived in the U.S. and I started uh, studying at the, at the Conservatory of Music, I've been blessed with many commissions. I've been working. My life has been being provided basically through this, through this job, you know. <laughs> Well, I, it sounds like your your talent has earned it. But I want to go back to your saying that music is the way you think about music is as a game and that you can't think of it primarily as a career. You've also taught many students, correct? Yes, I did. So how do you impart that particular knowledge to them? I'm a very flexible teacher. <laughs> and my, so right now, I used to teach at the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, and after I started the festival, I quit that job. I now just work as a freelance composer. But I also teach at the Baha'i University now. I teach basically two classes, one counterpoint and one orchestration. Uh, my classes are pretty flexible. We listen to music. I don't grade students and they love it because um, um, I, I just hate giving numbers and you know alphabet letters to people and evaluate them that way because at the end of the day, I'm not providing much you know through the online means what, what i try to invoke in my teachers is just to be aware of that that the end of the day this is a this is a this is a way of living and uh, it's not the type of education that you can receive and you immediately you graduate and you go find a job this is uh, the music is solely should be enough and uh, playing music and composing music in my opinion is a privilege in fact so the Baha'i University still takes place in people's private homes in Tehran, is that correct? Actually, for the last couple of years, it's been, and due to the COVID-19 um, restrictions, uh, now the university is entirely online, actually. And um, they have several teachers from all around the world teaching, and I've been privileged enough to uh, be teaching at this school and be in touch with such amazing students. But Baha'i students still can't get a higher education in Iran? They cannot. No, they still cannot. Since the beginning of the Iranian revolution in 1979, Baha'is have been systematically deprived of education and uh, other social rights. And some of them have been given, for example, the right to have a passport has been given to Baha'is for the last 15 years or so. And before that, they were not able even to get out of the country. And they had to be smuggled into the neighbor countries and then become refugees and come to the West. But now you can have a, a passport and the marriages were not registered at that time. Now they are registered, but the higher education situation still remains the same. And uh, young people are systematically deprived of education. Well, you mentioned the word refugee, which I think is a good segue into talking about your work on the Turkish border. Of course. And I wonder if you can describe how you came up, came to the idea of the Flying Carpet Festival and um, how you developed it. 
So basically, all this started in 2018, and uh, due to the political uh, hemisphere in America at that time, I was feeling the need to uh, do something more real than I was doing. I mean, that is relative, but at the time, I was feeling that I'm very much absorbed in the artistic community in the U.S., and I felt that a lot of that is kind of out of touch with reality. I was just hearing about people losing their home. Almost more than 20 million people have lost their home in Syria. I was very much, you know, inspired to do something about this. I heard about this organization named Sirkane or Hariyat Desanat Darnegi or Art Anywhere Association that was active in southeast of Turkey. During a travel that I had to Izmir um, when I was visiting my family in 2018, I actually took a one-day trip uh, very hesitantly to this small city because it's in, it is in the red zone and uh, there are lots of conflicts happening because it's a border city and it's very close to the border of Syria in Turkey. The founders of the organizations were kind enough to took this day off and show me around the, the whole organization. They showed me the street centers they had at the time. This was a decision that was not really made by me at the time. It was uh, inevitable, actually, to accept to do something. I wanted to be part of them. They were originally looking for a music instructor. But uh, when we met, they talked to me about this idea of a festival because they've been running several festivals, music festivals, circus festivals before. And they wanted to kind of combine that, consolidate that into one festival. And uh, on the same day at night, with one of the founders of the organization, Pinar de Miral, we sat together and uh, we wrote an application for a grant from the U.S. Embassy in Adana. And uh, this was a grant competition, and our Flying Carpet Festival won that competition, in fact, and we received the grant to initiate this project uh, in the city of Mardin and the surrounding cities. And so this was in 2018. You've had how many festivals since? Uh, we've had three festivals. In uh, 2020, uh, due to the COVID restrictions, we were unable to have any public gathering in that part of the world. Basically, the last year was 2021, and I basically just came from it. It was in October, between October 1st and October 10th. How do you think your artistry informs your philanthropic work, your artist spirit? In fact, uh, I have to tell you that I don't really call it philanthropic work. I call it social work. And I think, in fact, it is part of my artistry. Uh, my music uh, is very much is informed by political and social dilemmas in the world and conflicts all over, both in Iran and the other countries that uh, I've encountered. And uh, for was, example, this, was this always the case? It was the case. Uh, back in 2017, for example, I composed a piece, a 25-minute choral piece for Kronos Quartet and uh, San Francisco Gears Chorus. And we collaborated with uh, Afghanistan National Institute of Music Children Choir, which um, is the first music school ever founded in Afghanistan. And it was founded in 2010. I also created other pieces uh, regarding uh, women's voices in Iran because women are systematically, again, deprived of singing in public. So I collaborated over three pieces. I collaborated with several singers in Iran 
and either it was uh, performed by Kronos Quartet or we performed with other ensembles. This is something that I cannot separate myself from. I am a child of revolution. I was uh, I was raised after right after the revolution in 1980s, where the society Iranian society was as at the most ideological, you know, point in the history. And uh, in fact, both in Baha'i community and both in the um, I mean in the political realm of Iran at that time, we were constantly exposed to. Uh, incidents happening and uh, uh, these incidents kind of always informed my pieces and my music along the way uh, this is in fact not a choice but something that i am born with in fact if you don't mind me asking what do you mean by incidents well for example coming from a baha'i family many of my father's friends they've been either uh, jailed or executed and i grew up with a large number of friends family friends that uh, none of them had a father. And uh, my father, in fact, was a father to them because of this friendship that he had with their fathers. And uh, I grew up around them. So the pain they were enduring was kind of part of my life as well. I remember as a child, when we go to their houses, my father would advise, my mother would advise me actually not to hug my father too much because all these children were deprived of that you know, privilege that I had. So I was, as a child, uh, even I had to always be considerate and be sensitive to their emotions and uh, what happened in their lives. So since you've been working with Flying Carpet Music Festival and teaching and working with those refugee children, how, how has that impacted your art? In many ways it had. I, it brought me more to the performance side of music, which I love very much. And uh, before that, I was mostly involved with creating music and creating PDF files and sending it to people. <laughs> but now um, I'm very much performing, uh, you know, in every festival. And I'm, I also have created this on a parallel level. I have created this basically school of thought in that festival around improvisation. And this came out of need because the artists that we bring there and the logistics and everything dictates that we don't have much time in order to prepare for the festival. So performers should rely on improvisation a lot. And uh, I usually uh, hold, for example, a two-day rehearsal and we mostly meditate together and we I kind of teach improvisation to uh, Western classical musicians who have extraordinary ex skills in performing, but they cannot improvise that much. So this is something that I vividly see that has impacted my work. And I had also the privilege of meeting a lot of local musicians in the Mardin area. And this area is one of the most ancient areas in the world. And I've been privileged to work, be working with a lot of, for example, Dangbej singers who are coming from this, this Kurdish uh, tradition of singing that is called Dangbej. And uh, they are basically troubadours. They travel from one part of the region to another, and they sing Kurdish songs, which include stories inside of them. Hmm. So uh, this um, definitely this project has exposed me to a different array of musicians, and I've been privileged enough to be working with them, leading kind of a chamber or orchestra, uh, with them and it's funny it has happened to us that in the middle of the paper i mean the, the musicians we work with the local musicians are mostly uh, musicians by heart you know so it's happened in the middle of the performance the the singer would start to sing 
completely another song that we have never rehearsed and we all have to adjust right in that moment and start playing with him you know uh, so this way of spontaneous response to music is something that I can tell you has been invoked by this festival and this project. And so a lot of the Western musicians who come who come to the festival basically have to, to learn this skill, it sounds like. It does, but in fact, it's not a skill. It is, in fact, I would call it more of a spiritual liberation <laughs> because they are already amazing performers. They already have a strong intuition, strong musicianship, and they are simply are afraid of improvisation. I release something in them that they are, then they, they would be, you know, inclined to actually to respond musically and out of heart. Uh, so separating a little bit, taking a break a little bit from the music of the mind and uh, making themselves, uh, bringing themselves back to music of the heart, which is, I think, it's a joyful event you know in any musician's life what are your hopes for the students you're teaching at baha'i university what do you think is their prospect as iranian musicians um yes i'm not really um, huge about them leaving in iran and immigrating to another country in spite the fact that that's something they're constantly advised I think that people should live a musical life, no matter what they are end up with. Because even at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, I can say more a large percentage of the students after graduating, they're not musicians anymore. They work in offices and they work in administration and they have other jobs. So I think the musical education is in fact part of a spiritual education. And uh, I feel these students, uh, they should really strengthen that part of themselves, no matter where they're going to end up. And of course, if they want to study music further, they have to get out of Iran. That is an, an inevitable fact. But I don't necessarily encourage them to do that. And I still believe in this day and age with the emergence of digital media and everything, anyone can be anywhere and they can still produce amazing material. I love what you just said that. Many of your students don't go into music, but their musical training gives them uh, a spiritual footing in a way. Are there other teachers who share that teaching or are, the, are you the only one? Because I feel like conservatories really train young students to be professionals. And if they don't, quote unquote, make it, they're failures. Uh, so it seems like there's an alternative here. I think that's a very American way of looking at music in fact in that sense every musical school music school in the country is a scam because there is no prospect job waiting for these students and the fact that such students with such skills come out of schools and they feel as a failure i think that's something to be discussed you know academically but institutions today i don't think they have the time to do that and they they are mostly concerned about creating almost an imaginary image of a prospect and a career for students which really does not exist classical music is at a very vain point and there are certain reasons for that flying carpet was in fact partially was for students who feel that way the, the young people that who came out of conservatories or music schools here in the u.s and they feel that if they don't get a job at some symphony that they might hate later, <laughs> they, they are a failure. And that's just not right to me, in fact, you know, because uh, many of my friends who are employed and hired by these orchestras, they have to sit all day on a chair and play some music that they might not like, you know. 
And they do that for tens of years just because of the security. It's also the same about academic jobs. In fact, I myself, I'm not really interested in academic career because of that, in fact, because I don't think that a musician should come out of school and start teaching the same thing that he has been taught to other students immediately. I don't think they're ready for that. But it seems like the job market is going that way. As a composer, I was expected to get a DMA and be immediately applying for academic jobs. And that's something I was not interested in. I was just simply not interested in it. Uh, I love interacting with people. I love the impact that music has on normal people. And I wanted to observe that throughout my career. So, you know, in this podcast, we like to talk a lot about reinventing systems that no longer work in the arts. And I think one system you brought up is an educational system that is teaching students to look forward to a career that may no longer exist. If you could create your own music school, let's say a flying carpet school <laughs> for gifted musical students here in America, what would it look like? First of all, I would love them to be exposed to every genre of music and music from other parts of the world. You know, that is, I think, the first issue that we are mainly in music schools are concentrated on the music from, from six Western European countries. Then that, in fact, is an old phenomenon, you know, and needs to change and will change at some point. But now doesn't seem to be the time. But the fact is that the music coming from every culture is as precious to them as it is classical music to the Western civilization. And uh, there is uh, there are advantage points, you know, to every type of music that exists in the world right now. For example, in classical music, I, I, I teach counterpoint and I, I, I'm very aware that counterpoint has been always a skill that a classical musician, classical Western musician can be proud of and the, the, the more efficient and the more proficient they become. Uh, the music would sound more elaborate. It's an achievement for Western classical music. But in fact, this is just one perspective of looking to music out of thousands of ways, you know. For example, in Iranian classical music, there is so much emphasis on melody making and improvisation on melodies. I personally believe strongly in melodies and I feel that uh, music exists because of melodies. And melodies are in fact stories from the past and that are being passed to us and we are kind of obligated to actually to embed them and into um, uh, promoting them because they, they are the stories of other people from the past and they, we are just part of that past. Uh, so I feel that, for example, this is one way of looking at music. In Iranian music, there is so much emphasis on melodies and being able to improvise on a small motif or a small uh, portion of a melody for hours, you know. And that is a definitely a skill that doesn't exist and does, is not encouraged in the classical music scene or the classical music school. So as, I'm, as a nation that we are made out of several cultures, hundreds of cultures and hundreds of different, different ways of looking at music, uh, why are we so concerned about these five countries? I, I, this is something I still don't understand. I think an American music school can be very different from a European music school because they have a tradition to withhold and they have a tradition to uphold. But the fact is that uh, for us, we can continue on, we can, we can expand to other types of music. Uh, it's an idealistic idea, but for example, I think why a symphony where classical music is being performed 
Why doesn't it include classical music from every country in the world? Why should it be just five European countries that we are so much focused on? I think these are just colonial effects that has remained from the old times and uh, no one has thought of changing them because they are so strong. But in a society like us that is so diverse and there is so much, so uh, little support for uh, music, for serious music, for art music, I think we should expand to the music of other nations. And this brings a lot of support from other communities that uh, they have lived and existed in this country for centuries, some of them. Have you ever been tempted to curate your own event or even had your own institution here? I've been thinking about it recently. I can oh, you, tell you have? I can tell, tell you me. the festival uh, has been taking a lot of time. I mean, the last right. uh, four years, I've been trying to establish something here. And you have to realize also these institutions, they run mostly out of endowments and large investments that have been made. So um, so it, it is, first of all, difficult to compete or bring anything, you know, to this, you know, pot basically out of, uh, I mean, what I'm trying to create actually here. But I've been thinking about it and I've been thinking how to, first of all, starting from where people enjoy the music. That should be somewhere that appeals to the masses, to the people that uh, everyone would enjoy. So uh, I'm thinking of social programs. I'm thinking of how to curate you know my my own um, you know type of music here but it also needs this kind of endeavor needs support from existing ins institutions because they have almost all the means that is necessary to create um, such event but as a composer instead of curating i've been composing the music that i i love to hear <laughs> you know so uh, it's kind of narcissistic to say but in fact it, i think it's true about every composer that they write the type of music they want to hear and I've been trying to do this. I've been trying to break any stereotypes that uh, exist about an like Iranian immigrant musician here. I've been trying to embed the culture more inside of the American culture and what already exists here. I'm working on a long, long piece right now, uh, almost 50 minute piece about Rumi, actually. And the piece is commissioned by... Uh, by a choir very degree ensemble in Dallas, actually. And so this is, I mean, I took that as an amazing opportunity because we are working in part of the country that is in need of actually this kind of diversity in culture. And I'm trying to bring both the English translation and, and the original words of Rumi into this area. I think poetry is the way to reconcile and bring people together and gather them around uh, uh, an individual idea. I was going to ask you what what the, what upcoming project you're most excited about, but I think I, I just heard it. You got it. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Sakba and read a longer version of this interview, please visit uncsa.edu slash artrestart. Be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified of each new episode. We're bringing you some wonderful interviews in the coming months. Special thanks to Sakba and to Brian Dowdy, the Artistic Director and Conductor of Minnesota Philharmonic Orchestra, for allowing us to use House of Circus in this episode. Thanks as well to past Art Restart guest Sarah Cahill. Be sure to check out her episode if you haven't already. The video for House of Circus, or Sir Cane, features some of the young circus art performers from the Flying Carpet Festival and was directed by Pinar Demaral, 
the founder of Sirkane, whom Saba mentioned in the interview. The link to the video is in our show notes. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>